0: Welcome to Tales from the Dance Floor, a podcast exploring the lives and times of people from all walks of life who follow their passions and make careers out of DJing, producing, parties, dance culture, and the music industry. I'm Phil Morse from Digital DJ Tips. Let's get started. I'd like to welcome Morgan Page to Tales from the Dancefloor. Hello, Morgan. How's it going? Thank you for getting up so early to record this with us. I realise that with the time difference, it's uh, it's bright and bright and early in the morning where you are. It's not too bad. It's, you get more of a radio voice in the morning, so it's good. Oh, is that the, is that the secret? That's the is secret. That why breakfast <laughs> is that why breakfast shows are so popular because the DJ's just naturally sound better at that time of day. Takes a little while They're for the a... vocal cords to warm up. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, Morgan, you've got a. Uh, a, a long um and uh fruitful history in dance music kind of starting off with progressive what i would call progressive house of course that's changed over the years the bedrock the kind of 90s sound and uh, you basically carried on four albums grammy awards uh, great new single out as we speak busy man
1: yeah it's been a long journey seeing all the trends come and go
0: and all the cycles uh coming back and forth so it's been it's been a crazy ride do you feel like you're a veteran already at the tender age of what is it, thirty eight or something like that now, or do you feel like you've seen it come around a couple of times and that you've got, you know, you've got a big handle on what this is all about, or do you still feel very much like someone who's discovering, uh, discovering stuff every day?
1: I'm definitely discovering stuff every day and um, getting schooled by all the new producers. And I, you know, I always choose to work and collaborate with people that have fresher ears and are are new to it now and have the. Uh, you know, everyone's learning things so much faster now. It's like in two years, somebody can master production, whereas it would take at least ten years in the past with hardware and more expensive gear because it was just a more difficult barrier to entry.
0: Do you think it's easier for DJs nowadays and producers to make music, or do you think that because of the fact that there's kind of a glut of information out there and it appears to be all so easy, that that in fact could be a bit make it a bit harder for people who are, who are getting started? I think what happens is it, it shuffles the challenges around so that some things are easier and
1: some things are harder. So it's much harder to break through, much easier to learn the production. Um, I think it's easier than ever to learn the craft and get into that side of things. But then at that same time, because that barrier to entry is low, you're going to have more obstacles to creating a brand, creating a presence in a really busy marketplace. Um, and you know there were there were times where the climate was easier like the kind of the golden era i think of edm it was easier to break through uh there was a certain window but that always happens so with everything with every platform there's this window where there's arbitrage and you can you can make it on the port chart when that was the hot thing you could make it through soundcloud blowing up through that um every platform has this moment of arbitrage
0: uh, so what's the platform now is it tiktok or something like that
1: I think so. I gotta. I have to catch up with the times and start doing TikTok. I haven't been very active on that, but everyone's like, "Here's what you got to do. You got to make short videos, and that's that's part of the game you have to to play to sustain you know your career and, and stay relevant is adapting these new platforms, and then when it's a, another Snapchat that kind of becomes less popular, you move on to the next thing.
0: Well, it's quite crazy. Here we are towards the end of 2019, and people are already talking about we've had peak in, peak Instagram. It's happened. It's on wow. nice its way out. It's, it's craziness, isn't it? Wow. Uh, so. Talking about um, you know how things used to be, uh, let's go right back to the beginning and how you got into all of this. When Were you the odd kid out at school who was the only one into electronic music or was it a big thing? How was it when you first kind of realized any of this existed?
1: Yeah, it's funny you mention that because I was definitely the odd kid out. Uh, nobody was into electronic music. You were a tweaker or a drug user if you listened to electronic music when I was in <laughs> high school in the 90s. And I, it was really strange because at my high school – I grew up kind of in the country of sort of between the suburbs and the country of Vermont. And the only way you could discover music was radio stations. So I got into listening to college radio and eventually started um, doing the graveyard shift, you know, doing four to 6 a.m. I would listen to the stuff coming from the airwaves and I auditioned to do a show and I started doing people's shows because they wouldn't even show up for their slots. So as a high school student, I got into college radio because you didn't have to be a student. At uh, University of Vermont, so I got into it that way. Kind of this totally backwards approach. It wasn't a resident DJ working my way up. I kind of did this lateral approach into the dance music world before even doing clubs. So uh, it's it was a crazy journey. I mean, in high school, it was was not cool. It was it was hip hop and classic rock and jam bands. That was the thing to listen to, and I was I was the weird kid that was. I was like faxing charts to John Digweed and like sending over my responses to the, you know, giving my feedback on the new records. And people were like, what are you doing? You're interacting with other countries. And it was was a really mind-blowing time.
0: So did they send records out to the U.S. for you? Did you get on the promo mailing list and they sent them all the way to the U.S. for you?
1: Yeah. And I don't know what they were expecting from some kid on a college radio station in Vermont you know, in terms of blowing a record up, but I was getting test pressings from uh, Sasha and Digweed and it was a crazy time. I mean, I'm somehow I talked my way into those promo lists and I don't know if they got the value or not from that, but college radio, you know, can be really powerful. There's, there's some stations that are, um, can really move a record. I think more in the past now there isn't uh CMJ and things like that, but the, the charts used to really help with college radio to start artist careers. Yeah.
0: So people who are listening to this and, weren't around then probably won't have ever come across how this all worked. And it it worked by record labels sending test press, well, not so much test pressings, but a promo run of records, say 500 records to a company that would send them all over the, well, it appears all over the world. They certainly sent them all over the UK uh, from from these places. Uh, And in order to gauge how popular a track was going to be. And that's what you were faxing back, right? You know, yeah. my audience seemed to like it. I guess sometimes you had to make some of that stuff up because in all honesty, you weren't getting an awful lot of, you know, rabid audience response to the latest 12-inch, right? Right. And it'd be very
1: subjective too, especially with radio. Yeah, you're not really seeing the reaction. You know, the phones yeah. aren't necessarily lighting up uh, on the latest like single from Platypus Records. I remember getting those promos too, like early early trance stuff and early underground records. But you know, it was funny because you would you wanted to give them good feedback so you'd stay on the list. So I think sometimes they'd kind of push you for some more positive responses sometimes.
0: So <laughs> Same let me thing ask you a Paul question. Let, yeah. let me ask you a question. Did you get sent one of the early vinyl platypus pressings of Robert Miles's children uh, and plot the needle down and think, what is this? This is going to be big. I
1: didn't get a test pressing of that one, but I remember hearing that. I remember that was you know, that was a a certain time where a record would just travel like it would just be this force of electricity that would travel across all the cities and each country. And it was a a special time where, you know, a song would resonate in in Miami and it would blow up and things would really move quickly considering there was no social media at the time.
0: Mm. Yeah. And a a lot of instrumental music. I mean, if you think back to the 90s, there was so much kind of what even today would be considered to be quite out there music. Long seven minute tracks and instrumental tracks where nothing, there was no chorus till you know four minutes in
1: yeah two it's minute intros to, and
0: <laughs> yeah it's hard to imagine any tracks blowing up like that nowadays when even the you know the people who are making that music are, are now making three minute pop songs
1: yeah especially I think it's funny looking back that the, that these super long songs and a lot of them don't even get edited now for Spotify which I think is funny there's a lot of guys who are like they complain about low stream counts but they haven't edited their eight <laughs> minute opuses down to two or three minutes yeah uh but I remember that you you needed that because of the technology it was it was harder to to beat match and sync your records and you had to do more guesswork on turntables. Um, I don't miss those days though. (laughs) There's part of nostalgia that I love and, uh, and part of it that I don't miss and I don't miss the, the manual part of it. I love the technology integration, even though it's taken a little bit of the art form away from DJing.
0: Yeah. It's, it's certainly allowed the DJs to show they've got other skills, hasn't it? And I guess that's why slash producer, excuse me, slash producer has become so important after the word DJ, because to kind of do what, what was hard is now easy and people are looking for something more right
1: yeah and i think now it's all about having this combination of skills so it's not just being dj producer but maybe you're singing a little bit of shows or maybe you're bringing uh you're playing guitar you're, you're seeing a lot of these hybrids with guys like Elenium, yeah. uh bringing out more more hardware not necessarily a full band you don't really need to go full-blown drum set everything like chain smokers but you know you can you could augment that with a drum machine or sampler
0: I remember Judge Jules, who was one of the uh, one of the circuit DJs in the UK, had a big radio show. He used to bring a trumpet and play it his gigs way back in the nineties. He's actually been a guest on this Tales from the Dancefloor. Nice. I'm not sure if he takes his trumpet out nowadays, though. I think that might have been of the moment. It was this before, anyway. <laughs> before Timmy Trumpet? Sorry, it was this before Timmy Trumpet. Yes. Oh, yeah. yes. It was before <laughs> Timmy Trumpet. Definitely. Maybe that's where he got the idea from. Yeah. So Morgan, at this point then, you're playing college radio. You're starting to get on promo lists. You're obviously dedicated. You're obviously kind of starting to work things out as far as how the industry works. What was the next step in your career to, 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 to this? Did you did you then continue to think, I'm going to move into doing a quote unquote normal job? At what point did it get a little bit more serious?
1: You know, it was a long process because I thought things were going to move really fast and it'd be like Avicii and you blow up at 21 or 22. What I did next, though, was at the radio station, there was an offer to intern for labels in New York City. So it was this is my big chance to try living out in, in New York City, in Manhattan, downtown, and just get a taste of that life, work with the record labels. So they were looking for interns. I saw an ad for that. Um, and the people at the radio station are like, maybe you should take this offer and try it out. And it which is kind of scary to a high schooler to think, well, I'm going to leave the country of Vermont and go to the city. And it, New York is so intense. Like, if you can survive New York, especially at that time, uh, you can survive any city. So I went down there, worked for Plastic City and Fiji. And it was part of this big German conglomerate of labels. They were, they were actually making decent money pressing vinyl. And this was before the collapse, before the whole company went bankrupt. So eventually they got bought by EMI and their whole catalog got moved over. But they were doing good business, selling records over the phone. I remember the distributors would actually play like little samples, of the recordings over the phone. And that, you know, couldn't hear any of the bass and they would move <laughs> records this way. So they had a distributor Crazy. in-house. Um, Crazy. But I was the guy I would, you know, set up people's sound systems, take out the trash, organize the records, listen to some demos. And eventually I slipped my demo tape in uh, and that got me a little deal. They said like, this is pretty good. It's not incredible, but we're going to do you a favor. Let's, let's sign this record just, and it was very deep tech house stuff. So it was my first record for Fiji. Um, so the guy I was interning for was ran that label. And it's funny, a lot of people come and go in the record business. He's no longer the business, but he helped mentor me, Rick Salzer, um, and just gave me a taste for that world of, of underground music of German tech house so it was this really bizarre entry for a kid from Vermont to come in with this more underground style. Like the first stuff I got into was way more mainstream. The The starting point was like Crystal Method and uh, Chemical Brothers and sort of these sort of big beat at the time, Prodigy. Mm-hmm. And then I dug much deeper, got into the underground stuff. And this label was that first point of, okay, I'm going to start buying more records. I'm going to go dig through the crates and understand what this culture is all about. Um, and that really influenced i brought all that music back and integrated that into my mix show so the mix so, show continued till till college in boston so i went to emerson college and i continued the radio theme there but um but the first release came out and you know i had my first shot i had a i had a vinyl record i actually made it on um a mini disc i recorded it on a mini disc they transferred that to dat i mean these are such dead formats now but uh it was this these old days of it being so expensive to make records. It was an MPC two thousand uh, and a Nord Lead two, and to be to be able to afford that in high school, you either had to be a drug dealer or you had to borrow money. <laughs> so it was like that's like four thousand dollars of gear just to have to have a record done. So which one were you? Uh, I was definitely not a drug dealer. My parents were a little worried though because – so I started doing – I actually started making music on tracker programs, on Impulse Tracker, and similar to what Deadmau5 did where it was it was on the computer, 8-bit samples, super lo-fi, gritty stuff, and you're programming in notes. It was really music for making uh, video game soundtracks. Um, and then eventually I was able to save up money and through birthday presents, things like that, I got uh, got some keyboards, built a really basic setup. Uh, I always wanted to have gear that would make those like filter sweeps of DJ sneaks records and Daft Punk. And it was so much harder to do that at the time. You couldn't just automate a filter the same way. So Pro Tools was out of reach. There was no affordable Pro Tools options. So I saved up, yeah, bought an MPC 2000, uh, bought the Nord lead, bought an EMU E6400. And, and these are, these were so expensive at the time. Each piece of gear was two grand. So eventually started building that. That was the gear I used for my first EP and uh, those limitations helped, though. There, was, there wasn't a whole folder of plugins to sort through and audition and get lost. And um, I had a little zip drive that would attach to the MPC. And I think I used Recycle for chopping up the loops and then mapping them to the keyboard. So those limitations were really helpful for the creative process.
0: Mm, so at this point, you've, you've been to New York, you've done your internship, and you said you went to college, right? You went to college in Boston? Yeah, Emerson College. And you are, what are you, what are you doing at college? What's the plan? The plan then was sort of uh,
1: to have the fallback of a marketing major. So I did marketing and psychology. But the real reason I chose Emerson was because they had this amazing multi million dollar radio station and one of the best mm-hmm. in the country. So I saw that on the tour, and that was their trophy piece of the tour. And I said, okay, I have to go here. Uh, so I went to WERS, and uh, eventually I started doing their website I had all these other skills that I was doing for the record label, like I was building their website out and doing graphic design stuff I wasn't really qualified to do, but they were I think eventually at some point they were like, we need to hire a real web designer that's not just a uh, using Dreamweaver and you know it was like they need somebody who actually coded so coding was not my strong point. I'm definitely more of a visual um and kinesthetic person so I did these random jobs for the labels and built these sort of new media skills and I started doing that for the radio station as well. So I helped redo the whole website, eventually managed the station, ran the station for as long as I could as a student and, uh, helped with their electronic show. So I, and I did a, did a lot to try and get the station to go 24 hours at the time. They were limited to a very finite, uh, amount of a schedule throughout the day. So it was a long process, but we had a show called revolutions that was just electronic music and, it was during, I think it was like eight to 10. It was during actual decent hours. It wasn't delegated, uh, relegated to the late night graveyard shift, which all the radio stations were stuck at. So even in Vermont, it was when a pop station had a mix show, it was to fill late night spots, almost like infomercial time. So that two to 6am slot.
0: Yeah. But you were, you managed to get this kind of, this kind of slot when people were actually listening uh, and so at this this point i guess you've got your passion which is all this stuff and you're doing your marketing and psychology did you actually finish or did things take off too quickly and you kind of left that, left that as unfinished business or did you get to the end of your course it's probably good things didn't take off too quickly because I'm
1: glad I was able to complete college. I don't miss school. I loved Emerson, but just the amount of time it took, uh, I was in the library most of college, just just studying. And I did not do a lot of partying in school. I did my best to try to get into local scene and to the club scene, but it was very clicky. And it was tricky because uh, a lot of people had their coveted local residency. And, mm. you know, Boston had Pretty good scene at the time, actually, because it's a pretty transitory city. People come for two years and then leave and you don't establish much of a scene. So Lansdowne Street next to Fenway Park where the Red Sox play, they had a whole strip of clubs. Now it's House of Blues, but at the time it was uh, Axis, Avalon, all these other clubs and Digweed and all these big UK DJs would come and it was this just this big exotic event and to see these DJs come from overseas as you know, it was the real early days of it. And I remember guys were making records. They actually had a studio in the club in the basement of the club and people were making their own records in there and they had their own scene. Uh, But people come and go with Boston and it took a while to, I never really got to be a part of that scene. So that's why radio was this sort of lateral move into the industry. So I did my show, um, kept moving through the ranks there, did more records I, was, I had a studio in the dorms at Emerson and a triple, so I had two other guys, you know no division of space in there. It was your, you have a, a standing studio from IKEA, like a standing rack, and I would yeah. just make music on headphones while my roommates were sleeping in the room. <laughs>
0: Happy days, right?
1: Yeah. No, it was awesome because you don't, (laughs) I don't, at the time you don't realize how insane that situation is, but but later on when you finally have your own place, it's really rewarding. But um, I I continue to have studios and apartments, shared apartments throughout the years to save on costs. So, uh, but finished Emerson, it didn't happen uh, nearly as fast as I thought it was going to be. I would send out demos and get rejection letters, which is actually nice to actually get a response from labels. Uh, so I would send stuff to Josh Wink's label and uh, Yoshitoshi, the, the label that Deep Dish did. Uh, what else? Sent it to all the majors and started building relationships with different a in the industry. And uh, I remember at the time I sent it to, Warner Brothers had F-111 records, which is their pioneering electronic label. Every major had their own little electronic imprint. So got some good early feedback from them, um, but it took a while. And I moved out to LA after I finished and started working a day job. And then that process took a while as well. So spent three years doing that basic work, working for different uh, music licensing companies and doing street teams for film studios. It sort of putting that marketing major to use, but it's mm-hmm. still, I think, I think college was a very expensive introduction to the topic. And I don't think I would have done it very differently, but I wish I could have started even earlier. You know, I started making music when I was 12, so kind of Martin Garrix style. Everybody has these 10-year overnight successes, I call them. So you have to time in.
0: Yeah, it's true. And it sounds to me like you always had this plan. It sounds to me like this plan was there in your head that this was going to be what you wanted to do quite early, right?
1: Yeah, and I think it it was a fantasy for a long time. It was never, to me, a, a viable option that DJing would be a career. I thought producing... Would work. I actually applied for an internship at Skywalker Sound, thinking, "Oh, I'll get into sound design for the movie industry." I'm really glad I didn't because I think there's it's really hard to make a name in that world, and people don't appreciate it as much. But it's very really interesting work, but kind of goes uncredited um, in some sense. So people aren't necessarily waiting for your name in the credits later on. You're not touring off of sound design, so uh, yeah. I'm glad I I'm glad I stuck to this path, but. I just felt drawn to music and technology. And I knew that I had to create something for myself and create my own music. So I, you just, you just know on an instinct. And I remember seeing these compilations come in from moonshine music and seeing guys like, like Kaoki and DJ Dan, uh, John Kelly doing these mixed compilations and thinking this is insane. These guys are on airplanes every weekend playing hundreds of shows. Like, this is, I could never imagine even doing this for a living, but
0: maybe I'll try to make music and then see what happens. So you mentioned DJing then. At what point did DJing start to become something that you did, apart from on the radio? Uh, A
1: lot later. So I did – I remember playing my first live show in Boston. I actually brought an MPC and an E6400 sampler out, and hearing your kick drum for the first time live was the most insane experience because you've never heard it that loud. You've never heard your own music played that loud at a club. I've always heard other DJs playing my stuff on radio shows, um, and you get that early – feedback early on to make music and that's great on the radio but the club gives you a whole different kind of feedback from the crowd from the sound system from the subs shaking and especially when you have the original gear there where it's just that raw sound it's not not even a mastered record so that was the first gig and the labels were telling me at the time you know maybe don't go the live pa route because that's harder to book Um, so but i did one tour uh, throughout Canada, after I signed to Nordic Tracks, this this small Canadian independent label, they brought me on a little tour, and I brought all the gear out, did live PA, and it's just such heavy stuff to bring in flight cases to shows, and checking stuff is a nightmare. So eventually, I decided, well, let's maybe let's switch over to Ableton, and I played on and off gigs, but there was a stretch where the focus was really on remixing, and I got uh, I did a compilation called Cease and Desist, which was a inspired by what Danger Mouse did with the gray album. This is my white label album. And I remixed a bunch remixed a bunch of artists, uh Imogen Heap, David Bowie, Coldplay, Tegan and Sarah. And that was like boot camp, getting my chops down for remixing and really developing that craft because I didn't have the stems to work with. So mm. that led to doing remixes for Tegan and Sarah. Uh it led to I remember Imogen Heap said, Don't put this remix out. Um, and I ignored her advice. <laughs> she hadn't had any remixes at the time. So she wasn't, she didn't see the power of open source of putting the music out there and letting people remix it. And then hundreds of remixes later, she's all about it, which is really funny. But uh, I remember I sent that to radio stations like KCRW out here, big taste maker radio stations that gave me the confidence to make more music, more remixes um, that led to a record label deal with network and network led to finding really good singers uh, like Lissy. Uh, and I'm actually, I'm skipping over a little bit of the history where I have did those releases, like you mentioned, for Bedrock, um, for Digweed, for Satoshi Tomi's label, Saw. Those are the first vocal records. So all I know for Bedrock and Falling for Saw. But uh, I didn't really know how to produce vocals at the time. So it took me a while to, to understand the craft. And I got in this remix bender for a little while and did hundreds of remixes. Uh, I had an agent... I had a manager just for remixes, and that was really a good time. I mean, there wasn't the budget that they had in the past, but uh, there was a lot of work, a lot of remix packages being done before Napster and all that was happening. So, did a ton of remixes. Uh, those came out, and and then I started to focus back more on original records with Network.
0: And so, again, back to the DJing. So you're not you're kind of DJing on Ableton. You're DJing with your own productions, and I guess your own your own loops and so on did you at any point kind of think enough's enough I'm going to just start playing I'm just going to start playing like everyone else if you like start using the cdjs or is that still you know do you still try and do something along those lines now I did Ableton for a while there is always this pressure of everyone else is doing it this way you got to
1: do it like this and it becomes funny because you see the cycle happening over and over where everyone's playing with vinyl, you can't use CDJs. Everyone's playing with CDJs, you you can't use uh, Ableton. Everyone's playing with Ableton, you can't, you know, it just continues to devolve like that. So I think it becomes, uh, at a certain point, you just got to find what works for you to get the performance you want. And I really liked what I could do with Ableton. I really liked that. I could create custom effects, macros and chains, and I wasn't stuck to these static effects that are part of the hardware mixer on a pioneer. And I liked that for a while. So I would DJ with that. And I think the early stages when things had taken off, when longest road came out, um, that's what started the touring career. I really, I couldn't get arrested until that song came out. So I had a Mm -hmm. great production career going with remixes, but Nobody would give me the time of day. And I had to persuade someone to manage me. I had to persuade an agent to represent me. And I remember working a day job and thinking, cool, I think I got an agent and she's she's like, Oh, I'm gonna get you. I got 50 shows I can get you and everything's gonna work out. And nothing happened for a year. Nobody bit, none of the talent buyers were interested. And then Longest Road came out and The rest is history. That was like permission to tour. So, longest road came out. I had Dead Mouse remix it before he even had the mouse head. I was able to get him to do a remix for pretty cheaply for his fee at the time. It was like five thousand dollars or something. originally, Originally, it was like two grand, and the label was like, "We're not paying this." And I can't believe. And I really pushed back, and I said, "This guy is amazing." You know, he's abs- This is at a time when Dead Mouse is taking over the B port charts, when that really mattered, and he mm-hmm. really, really just was able to strip the song down to the essentials and gave it a whole new life. And I remember that blowing up in Miami, and it really that was a time when a record could really take hold and move quickly. Like I was saying earlier, even without social media, DJs would talk about it. You'd walk into every club, and you'd hear the record, uh, so that gave me permission to tour. And I played, I DJed with Ableton for, I think five or six years in that setup and eventually switched over to uh, playing with CDJs and using record box. That's more of a recent thing. But Ableton was, was just an amazing way to use the stems of the records, DJing with it. People always thought that was weird. Like, why would you DJ with Ableton? You have no playlists, no history on there. But that's how I did it. I would launch clips. Once I figured it out, I remember it being so frustrating in the early, early days of Ableton. It was Getting a handle on warping seemed so difficult at the time. It was like riding a bicycle. And then once you got it, it just clicked. Um, And I thought, well, why would I want to manually mix the records when I can have Ableton handle syncing them, and I can mix in key, and I can color code everything, and group clips by color and by tempo and key. So that was a revelation to me. So I would plug Ableton into, I would bring this Allen & Hone Alan, Alan and Heath DJ mixer, the zone 3D and later the zone 4D. I would bring that on the road, wrap my clothes around the mixer Mm. (laughs) and travel with that. And eventually I, you know, sometimes the biggest catastrophes are the biggest revelations. So I was playing a club in Albuquerque of all places. The sprinkler system went on, flooded the DJ booth, fried the mixer and fried my mixer, which is the worst thing. It wasn't even a rental. And I had to just wing it off of CDJ. I had no music prepped and I had to end the show early. And was so mad and just so pissed about the whole thing happening. And I couldn't find any place that would rent Allen and Heath mixers in the area. So I said, that's it. I'm done switching to Pioneer. And I switched over, started using um, just Ableton, hooking up directly via USB to the DJM 900. And then eventually I've switched to the CDJs.
0: So I'm really interested in this because a lot of DJ producers kind of are like you insofar as they are producer DJs. It kind of happens that way around. Mm-hmm. And as someone who, you know, my experience was very, very different to yours. My experience was always about vinyl. It was always about the, this part of records I love. And then someone said, well, come and play them for us. And then then I had to work it from there. So for me, that that feeling of of these these two things moving forward and you're in charge of them and you've got to keep them moving forward at, at the right, you know, that visceral kind of thing is what DJing is and it's what separates DJing from production. But you've come from it literally 180 degrees. You've come from it having control over everything, key, you know, elements and so on, um, all the syncing's done for you, to having to kind of like do that almost out of necessity. Yeah, how's, I remember...
1: In, in early yeah, you I the remember bug? It.
0: I mean, do you like it? Do you like it? Have you got the bug? Is it something that you, you something clicks and you think, actually, just in and of itself, this is actually a lot of fun? Or is it always kind of like, well, that's what's there. So that's what I'm going to use. It's always, I don't know. I think when these new pieces of technology come out,
1: um, not everything is, I don't jump on the bandwagon for everything, but I remember little things would happen, like Mixed and Key came out and I thought, mm. oh, here's another piece of software that promises to be revolutionary, and and then eventually you discard it, and that was not the case with Mixed In Key. Mixed In Key changed my life. Like that that mm-hmm. program, I use every single day. I scan every file through it. I work with them to actually improve the software, um, and so I send a lot of R and D feedback to those guys to Yakov. And it's so funny that a piece of software would come into your life and you use it for the next ten years of your life. So it's some of the technology comes in, and it's mind blowing. And it, But it is definitely, I get the bug. Like, I got the bug early on. The first bug was creating music. And then it was, I need to present it. And that's sort of like sharing the fruits of your labor. So being able to present that live, to see your audience. And the whole frustration with radio, even though I love it, is that the audience is invisible. And there was actually, at Emerson's radio station, there was a window out to the street. You're in downtown Boston. You can see people pressing themselves against the glass not always a good thing, but you'd see reactions because <laughs> there were speakers in the street blasting the music out. Um, so, so getting the reaction, I think you need, it, it's this yin and yang balance of creating the music, sharing the music, and you need that feedback cycle to be satisfied with it. Uh, it I didn't want to just make music in a vacuum. So, but for me, it's, I, I did do the manual DJing thing for a while with vinyl. I would bring vinyls to some shows and I just quickly was like, I don't, I don't like it. I don't like that the needle is broken at this club or the the counterweights aren't balanced. I didn't like that bit of chaos. There's enough chaos going on in a live environment. And every club setup was so different. And the minute a needle started skipping on vinyl or the vinyl was slightly warped because I had moved across the country, I was just like, I'm done with this. I do love vinyl. I still have a lot of my vinyl, but I really was quick to embrace the new technology and move, but it was not, uh, it was definitely a rocky road getting used to that sort of DJing. And it's bit me in the ass several times. I've had uh, computers crash at Coachella. Uh, I've had computers crash when I threw out the first pitch at the Dodgers game once and I played on top of the dugout and I was doing a deal with a PC company and the computer crashed because it was Windows it doesn't always work the best with audio unless you have it really tweaked and refined. Uh, and you know, you, sometimes those experiences, you're cursing the technology you use. But, but I love it now, and I, I definitely embrace it for for all its faults.
0: So here's a here's a completely techie question. With 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 complete apologies to anyone listening to this, just to find out a bit about you, Morgan. But I'm yeah. going to ask it anyway. Uh, as a producer and as someone who clearly listens very carefully to every element that that, that you're DJing with, um, mixing in key involves locking that tempo, locking that pitch as you mess around with the tempo when you're DJing and it can make stuff sound a bit ropey. Is it something you work with or do you kind of plan so that you're not having to do that so much? I know some different DJs have different approaches to to dealing with, you know, letting the uh letting the algorithms built into your CDJs uh, hold your pitch steady while you're while you're mixing. What's your take on that?
1: Yeah, um uh, I kind of have some rules that I use where if it's and I'll start the set out slower. I, obviously, the easiest way to start out, like if I'm doing now, these days, I started out slower than usual, where I might do 122 or 124, and then work my way up to 128, 130. But the core anchor of my set is 128, and I never use Master Tempo. Uh, I think the, the algorithm in that is pretty high quality, but I just don't like it. Uh, I just, I just choose songs that are close enough in key and mm. work my work my way around the Camelot. Key yeah. scale, so work my way around the clock essentially, uh, and make sure everything is clearly determined in that. And I I audition stuff a lot ahead of time. It's not a static playlist, but I have a a general guide of clusters of songs that I like that work together. Similar to yeah. the way I used to work in Ableton, where stuff would be color coded. It can paint you into a box, uh, into a corner of thinking. Well, four A's got to go into five A, or you know, you have like your your two or three options for which key direction you're going to go. Yeah. And then sometimes you just got to, it's just a lot of trial and error. So, um, a lot of what I do is I'll prepare a lot of mashups too, where there'll be a build up and a drop and I'll do some of that ahead of time. And then I like to do a lot of that, um, on the fly as well. So I'll do a mix. There's a mix of preparation. Uh, so it's being prepared to be spontaneous. That's what I call it.
0: Nice. Nice motto, nice one-liner. All right then. So let's uh, let's pull back from the technical for all those people who were yawning through <laughs> DJ stuff and let's talk about something far more exciting because the longest road has now has now got you that passport to the world and you're 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 suddenly in demand and you you've got what that was 10 11 years ago, right? So you've got a decade of touring, a decade of kind of it's happened for me. What's the last 10 years been like? How's it felt? Man, it's it's been crazy to see the
1: cycle of what's popular, what's not popular and how the sounds change. And I mean, I think it's it's just a privilege to be able to do this for a living. And it's very easy. A lot of guys go on tour and they, I see the cycle happen where they get, they start out really humble and they're friendly and they get big and they get egos. And eventually I hear them say like they're, they get tired of DJing. They don't even enjoy it anymore. And I really have kept that in my head of like, you need to recultivate your love for it and enjoy the process. Enjoy the ride. Continue to love making music, and um, you've got to take breaks every now and then. So throughout my career, I've really kept an eye on how to keep it sustainable. You know, if it's a lot of guys come in and they'll burn out, and they just they're known for one sound, they just smash it for that one sound, that one subgenre that's very sound design focused, and then you never hear from them again. So mm-hmm. for me, it's important to write songs that have longevity that are going to have impact. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a number one radio song to have cultural impact and to have longevity. So for me, it's writing the highest quality songs possible, uh, pressing forward and keeping it relevant, you know, wrapping the songs up in different jackets for the seasons if I have to. And I always remix my own stuff, create my own mashups to keep them fresh in my sets. Um, But I think you've got to take all these steps to stay – to continually fall in love with the craft and the process. And it, it can be very easy to get jaded on tour. So I see that now. I have the perspective of seeing that uh, with 10 years. And I don't know if I'd even call myself veteran or not. Like there's guys that are, have DJed so much longer that I would I would call veterans, you know, guys like Geta and Layback Luke and Tiesto and Armin, uh, who are definitely role models for me. And I've watched them over the years and they've helped support my records. So, I'm in this interesting zone of like having done it for a while, maybe not veteran, but definitely not a newbie and having had enough time to see the process unfold. So it's been, it's been a crazy ride. You know, it's been a, a combi- combination of really hard work, definitely some luck in there. That's a major role. Um, and just n- connecting and networking with so many people has been crucial. I think a lot of guys forget about that. They think it's just about sending out unsolicited emails and, You've got to build thousands and thousands of contacts to to make it in the music industry. And if you don't, uh, it's up to managers and other people on the team to do it. So, uh, But it's been amazing. The, the ride's been awesome and I, I still love what I do. I think I'm so lucky to be able to do it. Uh, but it's it's very challenging and you've got to stay on your toes and, and play the game.
0: So you, it's interesting that you talk about quality and that quality in, in your head is not defined by popularity. I mean, you've had... Is it four albums now? Uh, and I think your your last album, your last released album, was DC to Light, right? Which was what three, four years ago? Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's and you know now it's more about the singles focus. It's more about the the waterfall approach of a, a drip of singles and then yeah. repackaging them in EPs
0: and things like that. But you had a, you had big success with that, and it took kind of four. Even though I think you were being nominated for for um, I think you won something for one of your previous albums, you know, um, you know, the quality was there, but it took, a, it took time to build that momentum to the point where you're hitting the top of the US um, uh, dance charts and, and so on. And uh, is that what happened? Was it, you know, were you steadily building, you know, the more obvious signs of popularity, like just base, basically numbers, um, with the numbers slowly building over that time? Um, until that kind of breakthrough album where 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 you were suddenly appearing at the top of all the charts is that how how it felt well even
1: the charts are you know what kind of indicator are they now that the chart metrics have changed now so uh, you don't even have to be on the top of the charts you know look no, at isn't Skrillex. that
0: true isn't that true yes yeah. isn't that true
1: i i think the the really interesting lesson i've learned and it's kind of become clearer recently is that you can have, everybody has a different pathway to success. And if you can look at, you can drink the Kool-Aid and try to make a chain smokers record. And that path might not work for you. Um, it worked for them. And those guys are incredibly hard workers. They had a very clear vision early on. Um, they were very strategic with it. And so they've done some great stuff and mm. other guys didn't need that approach. They didn't need the radio play. They didn't have to play that game. Uh, they were able to make underground music and cultivate a loyal fan following the key thing for me, though, is that you're satisfying the core fans and you're adding, you know, you might be alienating them with some releases and you've got to replace those fans and keep that core. You know, I love that the thousand fan model that Kevin Kelly talks about, where it's like you've got to super serve a thousand fans and you can make an amazing living like that, but you don't have to, you can make millions of dollars without having a pop hit, uh, without having any radio hits. So there are many different paths to success and it's really up to you to figure out, you know, your combination, your skill set that you have as a DJ and as a producer and how you're going to get that music out to really have it stick with a fan following. Um, mm. Cause the radio game is very expensive to play, to promote stuff to the charts uh, and you don't have to play all those games. Uh, there's a lot of tricks with bundling albums with ticket sales to achieve chart positions. Uh, no, we've done that before. It's very effective. It kind of feels like cheating, uh, but it's, I think you got to have to, you need to define success in your own mind of what that means t- to you, you know, what gigs you want to be playing, um, what kind of records you want to be making. You want to be happy with the music you're making because you're going to live with those records for years to come.
0: That's a wise, wise way of approaching it for sure. Um, and also I think it's true that the people with longevity, they kind of find their own way of walking between the underground and the overground, right? So... Um, for instance, one of my favourite pop hits of the last twelve months, or so was uh, Ava Max's "Sweet but Psycho." Great yeah. record. Yeah, my kids adore it as well. Uh, and you've remixed that, and it's a great remix. It's got your kind of sprinkle on it, but at the same time, you've remixed Daft Punk. Of course, is you know, that must have been, must have felt awesome to get the chance to do that. Yeah, well, that's um, a, that's
1: a whole interesting story. Where <laughs> I, I should clarify that my remix did get rejected for Daft Punk, and it was a, it was a really good example of. Um, uh, a teachable moment. <laughs>
0: so that was a, that <laughs> was a remix. It, Morgan, go ahead and go ahead and teach it. <laughs> oh man.
1: That, so I did a remix and I just, I approached that remix with sort of a left brain approach and I wanted it for, I was thinking about it too much analytically, too logically for the dance floor. And I should have gone more right brain, done more of a musical approach, like what Avicii did with his record. So this is for Tron. It was a really hard, um, song to remix for Solar Sailor. That's what it was. And, but it was for the Tron soundtrack for Disney. So I don't think Daft Punk even got to listen to them. I think it was, um, Jason Bentley was the A&R for it. So he it was even a friend and he said, I want to like this remix, but I don't. <laughs> so he was rooting for me and he recognized it, that he didn't love the remix and it didn't come out, but I still have all the stems and all the sessions from Tron, which is amazing. So I, could, I know all the plugins that they used.
0: <laughs> oh, well, there you go. You so that was a nice takeaway,
1: but, but um, you know, like the Ava Max remix, other things that it's funny. Cause one remix, like that created some buzz. That was just this year. And that was such a fun process working on this remix and then that led to doing a mix for Ellie Golding uh, and Clean Bandit and Alessia Cara uh, so it created this just it just started raining remixes for a little while there um, and so once your name gets out there people can forget about you you can fall off the radar and then you, as soon as you want you can be back on the radar with a good mix
0: indeed yeah so you uh, so you well, it must have felt like full circle a little bit for you what, what with the way you started started off with all of this yeah, uh, kind of like getting a lot, a lot of remixes falling into your lap all yeah. of a sudden. But yeah, you have a new single out right now. So tell us about the new single.
1: Yeah, so new single is called Footprints uh, and it's with Haley Ann. So she's been known for a lot of her trance collaborations. And this is actually kind of a throwback to that 2008 sound of um, the the Deadmau5 remixes and the Cascade stuff at that time, where it was about big chord stabs, uh, simplicity, not so much like a huge drop, but still having impact on there and really focusing on the chord voicings and the sparkles with arpeggios. So I wanted it to be simple. I never want to overcomplicate the songs. So maybe sometimes they're too simple, but this one was really awesome. And they sent me the vocal stem, it just, it just sat perfectly. They sent me a little demo, the top line with the vocal and the piano. And a big thing for me is getting really good vocals, like recording them in studio if I can, but they did such an amazing job. So, uh, Haley Ann and Matt Steeper did that. And uh, that's really exciting. And also, Fire and Gold is out. I think it's top 10 on the radio charts in the US. If that's a measure of success, who knows? But I think, <laughs> but it's a good, it's a talking point. And I love, um, I love that that song is getting embraced by, terrestrial radio so there's so many things you have to keep an eye on though it's like now a lot of guys are fixated just on spotify plays but you've got to be aware what's happening with apple and amazon music and deezer and pandora so the new model is is a whole
0: different approach so it's what 10 11 years now you've been touring you've been playing all over the world and so on you're a dad now right yes has that made you want to slow down? Has that made you reassess your priorities? Has it made you think, is the next 10 years going to be, going to be any different? How's your, how's your, how's fatherhood kind of tempered you or changed the way you think?
1: It's funny you ask that because I think it's made me want to speed up, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I want, I really enjoy the time I get to spend with my daughter. She's just over a year old right now. And I've actually been trying to train her to DJ. And she's picking up little things like really surprisingly, She's already moving the faders and, and, you know, Spinning the records back on the CDJs and uh, things I would never expect a one year old to figure out this early. She doesn't care about the piano, but for me, it's the balance is never static. So it's never like, cool, it's great. And this doesn't take any more work. So right now it's the balance is good and I have to work to maintain that. But I, I'm in the studio during the week, Monday through Thursday, and then touring Friday through Sunday. So I'm back Sunday night and that that's a nice balance because I work from home. My studio is in my house. It's it's at least a few floors down. So I have a defined space. I think that's really important. Uh you know, in the past, I've had bedroom studios where I would flip a mattress up to record vocalists uh in apartments and things like that. So it's it's nice to have a defined, like proper professional studio that I built from scratch. But, but being a dad is great. It's one of the best things I've done. And it, it seemed like this lame domestic thing that I would make fun of in the past. And now it's like, oh my God, I can't imagine not having done it.
0: Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Fatherhood does that to you. You kind of can't imagine life being any different, uh, but it's almost unimaginable beforehand, right? Because you know, it's going to be a big change, but you just can't ever be prepared for quite how big it's going to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Teaching is also important to you. You've even got your own separate Twitter channel just giving daily production tips, which is very unusual. I mean, you mentioned Layback Luke earlier, another man who hasn't had a big breakout smash hit, by the way, and yeah. has managed quite happily, who also is is like you insofar as he wants to share. Um, he wants to share his knowledge. He's not. He doesn't feel like he's giving anything away or making life harder for himself by teaching and by sharing. And in fact, Luke was telling me that he's, he was actually teaching a, via a, a production forum before he was doing any of this. It was kind of how he got into it, uh, helping other producers and you're in that yeah. mold. And it's, un, it's unusual Morgan to, to hear, even in this day and age of everyone sharing everything, it's unusual to see people doing that. What was your inspiration? When did you think I actually want to give stuff back? I want to help people to produce. When did that happen? I think the first
1: moment was just selfishly saying to myself, I need to remember what's working right now in the studio and what technique is hitting and and making me more efficient or helping with the muse. So it was literally just writing things down that made sense and helped my process before I would forget them. Uh, I feel like... My memory's gotten worse over the years, and I have to write more things down. And it's just a way of collecting my thoughts. And that's mm-hmm. actually about clearing out space in your mind. You know, it's like almost like doing morning pages that they talk about in the artist's way. I need to clear stuff out because uh, it'll just disappear or it'll. It'll keep me from remembering new things. So I selfishly wanted the tips to help myself. And then I was talking to a friend of mine. And he said, why don't you share these? Why don't you, you know, Twitter was fairly new at the time. And he said, why don't you put these out as, it's kind of like short text messages. And if you can consolidate these tips into small little nuggets of compressed knowledge, there might be something to that. So I started to compile them and I built more than, it's almost at 800 tips now. So I it, on Twitter, it randomly picks five tips per day. And it cycles through a spreadsheet of these tips, uh, and it's not just like how to create a fat kick drum or or how to get a DJ gig. It's it's philosophy, it's cultivating the muse, it's uh, maintenance for hardware and software in the studio, um, travel tips. It's a, a holistic approach to the process because I've had to learn to be a really efficient world traveler. You know, flying, doing touring everywhere from India to North America to Europe. I had to learn how to travel really well and really efficiently and run a really efficient st- studio and be able to turn music around really quickly over the years. So I felt I should give something back and, and share those tips and why not share them. And if they're effective for people um it's really rewarding to see that. Like recently I actually tracked down a remixer. It was Owen Norton who did a mix for the Chainsmokers. And I was like, I was like, I got to get this mix. Like, and he reached out and he's like, Oh, the quick tips changed my life. Like they they're everything. That's how I got this remix done. So by giving knowledge out into the world, I was able to help someone's career that helps my DJ sets. So it's amazing <laughs> that that can come back. Uh, and it's to see that it actually made an impact with somebody is really rewarding. I think sometimes it's easy when you do these tutorials and things, like it takes a long time. That's why you don't see a lot of people doing it as much because uh, if you're not selling a product, it can be hard to justify that time spent. So I just, throughout the week, I carve out a little time to compile the tips. Um, I don't, I want to be spending more time making music than talking about music but i i carve out that little bit of time where i can write down tips or blog posts so on mpquicktips.com there's i think a link to all the the twitter tips but mainly there are deep dive blog posts that are super long and those really explore the subject but the tips are like the building blocks for the longer posts
0: yeah it's like i don't know if you follow seth godin and his marketing tips i love him they're very similar in that respect and that you never quite know what you're going to get but you end up bookmarking quite a lot of them because they are everything as you say from kind of more more zen like Approaches to the way things are done to you know never forget your nine volt batteries and everything in between. Right. So uh, yeah, we we we're big fans of your of your quick tips. Great. Over on Twitter. We'll and link and on now
1: I don't know if you saw the cards that came out. So we partnered with OWC, which makes amazing Mac upgrades and hard drives. We've actually produced physical cards. So they're similar to Brian Eno's oblique strategy cards, but they're much mm-hmm. more graphical and visual and actionable. So. You know, his, his cards were inspiring. There's a lot of creativity cards out there, but we made some cards that would broadly apply to other disciplines. So it's like if there's uh, graphic designers or video editors or architects, a lot of these concepts carry over to other fields, and it can get you into a different headspace to think differently about your workflow. Uh, so like some of the tips are the, the rule of three, where you need to rotate uh, musical phrases and elements because the brain can really only retain three simultaneous events going on at the same time
0: well we'll link to the cards as well and yeah then we should we'll do make it. sure we'll, we'll make sure that happens so uh, just to kind of close off here then then morgan i'm going to guess that i quite often ask the question can you ever see yourself doing anything else but i'm going to guess you're going to say not in the near future right not in the near future, but you know, right now there's so many. I'm actually trying to cut
1: down on any of the side projects. There's there's uh, an underground alias I'm working on right now. And that's been a fun little project of doing more tech house and less musical stuff. Uh, but I also do music for SpaceX and Tesla. It's just a fun thing. It's not even a money project. It's. Um, scoring music for rockets and cars it's it's a fun little little <laughs> side thing so they their friends like the musk family um actually dj for them every now and then so it's been fun to get to know them and know these other industries so that's been really fun uh the music world is keeps me busy enough uh there's there's almost no time for anything else being uh, uh other than being a dad and a dj and a producer
0: so you don't see yourself finally ending up Scoring films in the future when you when you've had enough of the touring, or is that something that uh, that you think you think might be a good a good thing to finally get around to? I could do that too. It's been fun. I mean, the, a lot of the the Tesla and
1: SpaceX stuff is scored string work uh, for, yeah. and I've given them a lot of the B sides for my music. Where so if I'm doing an instrumental draft, um, they'll use that because they don't advertise. They'll put it in little in their YouTube videos or um, when they're unveiling a new product, like I did the semi truck uh, and some of the battery unveil videos. So, you know, it's fun to flex your muscles in different areas, try different things where they're not necessarily your original strong suit. And then you learn how to score properly. And sometimes that stuff's even easier than writing lyrics. So uh, it's good to explore all those areas. And I think it is really important for people to think, to, to not think, uh, just of working in one area, like just make club bangers,
0: you know, you can do it all. No one's saying you have to just do one type of music. So one final thing which I forgot to mention which I do want to mention because it's quite a feat in itself and probably not too surprising considering your background but what is it 400 odd episodes now of your of your mixed show which is on Apple Music and Spotify and so on is it about 400? Yeah we're gonna have the fifth the 500th episode is gonna come up in January so Wow is it's that, has that has that got closer to 500 already? Yeah I mean, I mean Armin's a, a state of trance is clearly very important it almost set a benchmark for this but something that's Very important to you as well. Um, How's that been, maintaining that week in, week out through all that period? It's great. You know, I couldn't do it without a team of people that helped me filter
1: the music. And Mm -hmm. and, I mean, that's a lot of work getting everything in and getting the best music possible. So uh, it's been awesome. You know, I have a producer that helps me with the show. But for, I think, for 300 or 400 episodes, I did it all myself. And it would just take so much time of the week. So I, I bring in a team of people, I pick the best tracks, uh, do the mix, do the voiceovers and it's a fun process. So it's, it's still continuing my journey in radio. You know, it is satellite radio. It is a podcast as well. Um, and maybe in the future it'll expand to more things now that Sirius XM bought a chunk of Pandora. So they're unveiling new products, uh, sort of merging online radio with satellite radio and even uh, terrestrial radio. So there's, cool things to happen in the future we'll see
0: so i think what's really to round up what's really interesting from your story for for our listeners is this sense that no one owes you anything and that networking and that helping out and just giving and giving and giving because you believe in it is so important and your comment about thousands and thousands of contacts are necessary for any kind of career in this industry and people think contacts are something you collect but they're relationships you make aren't they they're they're not they're not numbers in a in a in a contact manager they're people that right. that you you have a relationship with and that will that want to talk to you when you're around and don't kind of like cross the street to avoid you um there's a difference isn't there between pestering and, and helping
1: yeah it's, that's one of the most important things because i remember early on um i definitely made some mistakes and i i think i badgered some people early on and the you've got to build these relationships over time. They're not going to happen immediately. I think people expect that they're, they feel entitled to people helping them out, but you've got to offer something of value to somebody. So, you know, if you're starting out, maybe do a remix for free for someone or do a swap. Um, you've got to look at that contact relationship as, what, how am I going to help this person? So they'll, and, and in return, hopefully they'll help me, but not assume that they're going to help you.
0: Mm. And the other thing I, I think it jumps out is a kind of element of planning. And taking your time and doing it right, and being patient and realizing that that it's going to happen or if it doesn't happen something else will happen, which is directly related to what you're trying to do today here and now and so and so there's no there's no panic it's it's better to plan a little bit, get a few steps in place and and execute them before kind of throwing the Throwing the dummy, spitting your dummy out, and saying, "Oh, it's not working." You know, there's, there's, with you, it seems to yeah. be very measured. Is that is that kind of kind of a fair assessment?
1: I look at it like a slow burn approach, so that if if something is exponentially growing, it can fall exponentially. So, it's if your approach is build really quickly and. Don't build a, f- a solid foundation. Um, your career can can fall much faster than you would expect. So no one ever talks about exponential failure. Everyone talks about exponential growth. So for me, it's been this long, slow, steady burn, put in the work, not relying on gimmicks, not relying on hype. I mean, those all can play a role. But a slow burn over time where you're getting those fans and you've got to continually recultivate that love, keep it interesting, keep it fresh, and keep putting out music, You know, not resting on your laurels. Uh, that's been my approach. It seems to have worked so far.
0: And the final, final question, give us one single memory, one dance floor moment that you'll never forget. It could be dropping a tune. It could be a crowd somewhere. It could be, you know, you you choose. Give us something that uh, just made you kind of catch your breath and think, wow. I think playing Burning Man for the first time. Uh, it was
1: a couple of years ago playing Burning Man. Well, the craziest part was I got up there and none of the CDJs were working because of the dust. So thinking, okay, the cue button's not working. The play button's not working. What the fuck am I going to do? <laughs> so, uh and then I, I remembered, oh, I had already set up hot cues. I was prepared for that moment. So it was great. Uh It was the most, one of the most surreal moments of my life playing Burning Man, uh, just being on one of these massive, stages. And, and it's a different kind of stage than, uh, you know, what a festival is like as Burning Man is not really a festival, but mm. just being in that moment, your brain is almost totally rewired in this desert environment. You know, there's storms coming in every 20 minutes. Uh, everyone's riding around on bikes. People are half naked anyways. And just thinking like, this is a, a playground. This is a, a way to express yourself, play music. There's probably 300 sets of CDJs, you know, on these art cars throughout burning man and to have that experience i thought it would be a cliche thing and and i would be would regret it and i went and it was one of the most transformative experiences i've ever had
0: wow well thank you very much morgan page for all of your uh, insights today and for sharing your story we'll link underneath to some of your socials and to some of the stuff we talked about and we wish you the very best for the next decade or two of your career great thank you